Michael Shermer is an American science writer, a historian of science, the founder of the Skeptics Society, and the editor-in-chief of its magazine, Skeptic. Great to connect. I'm a big fan of yours. I really, really appreciate your time. Um, I had, yeah, I connected with Andy Norman, uh, and we spoke. And right. I, um, I know that you you had connected with him, so I, I, I reached out about you, and I'm, I really appreciate you connecting. Um, oh yeah. Uh, so. Yep, it's all good. So I figured I'd just do a quick intro to who I am and what I'm about, um, and then we'd love to kick it off and, and ask a few questions. And I, I'd say that. So just a quick intro to me, I work in technology and I'm fascinated by why people think what they think and <laughs> what, what problems they run into. And, um, I, you know, I, I've personally experienced uh, just three years ago, I had a pretty traumatic thing happen and I ended up uh, getting swallowed up into this religious community and then eventually coming out of it. What? Yeah. So like, I really, share, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I could share that a bit, but I, but that, that's important for me to introduce as sort of part of who I am because um, I have a firsthand experience of what it feels like uh, emotionally, intellectually to, to buy into ideas that you might not ordinarily. And then I also firsthand experience of, of getting out of that mindset. And, and so it's something that I'm really interested in illuminating for other people and, um, and, and people like you and Andy who have really studied this in depth and, and, and know these topics from a multitude of angles. I'm just fascinated to, to learn more about it. So that's, um, yeah. That, yeah. That's, what, what, what yeah, do tell? I can't wait to hear what, what, what's the group you were part of? Well, I, um, uh, it's, it's, it's a tough story for me to tell. I, um, so, th- so, uh, so three and a half years ago, my, 16 year old sister was killed. Um, she oh, was God. Uh, hit by a car. And, um, you know, I, it's, it's not easy. It's very hard. Um, I, I ended up uh, getting the, I'm, I'm Jewish and I was born Jewish and I uh, ended up becoming like a, you know, getting um, wrapped into the Orthodox community and, um, just, uh, just a lot of questions, you know, asking these people questions about themselves. And, you know, I, I spoke with a professor, an MIT professor who at the age of 27, and he, he's actually pretty well known at MIT. And at the age of, you know, his mid to late twenties, he made the decision as an adult with no prior religious programming, he made the, the decision to become religious. And so I, I would speak to people like them to, to have what I thought was an intellectual conversation of, okay, so walk me through the rational decision process you made to become religious. And they would. And, and you know, for, as an outsider, it, it, it was very compelling. And so I, I met people like this and I became part of the community. And um, yeah, long story short, I can get more into it, but I um, went to yeshiva in Long Island and in Israel and uh, lived with a rabbi and his seven kids, uh, the whole nine yards. Yeah. How old are you? How old are you? Uh, 30. And how old was your sister when she was killed? 16. 16. Wow. Oh, and how old were you when that happened? When did this happen? How long ago? Three and a half years ago. Wow. So I, was, uh, I had just turned, I guess, what am I, 30 now? So had I just turned 27 or something? Yeah. 26 and a half. Yeah. So Jake, that's, I mean, wow. I mean, that's huge. And I, I can't imagine the shock it must've been to your parents um, and what they went through with, with that. So, you know, it's totally understandable why you become religious. I mean, there's um, you know, there's certain aspects of, of the community of religion that's quite useful and supportive in, in these kinds of times when you're, you know, really troubled like that, grieving, you know, there's just no good answer. There's, I mean, I don't know if they promised you that she's alive and still, or her soul went somewhere else, or I don't know what, but, um, but of course, like, even if they don't do any of that, just to have a community of people that's supportive 
um, who have gone through things like this is, is huge. It's, it's a totally understandable. One of the aspects of religion, I think a lot of atheists miss is, you know, that, that they, they tend to think, well, it's all about the intellectual arguments for God's existence or non-existence and who has the better arguments, what are the arguments? And you can kind of go through all that. And, you know, I think since I'm an atheist, the atheists have slightly better arguments, well, more than slightly better arguments than the theists, but nevertheless, the theists have arguments. But when you're talking about something like this, what you just described, this has nothing to do with that. You know, this is the social aspect of religion. So is that, did, did when you did this, did that help the grieving process? Um, sure, I, I can get into that. And I, I before I, you know, I hesitate because I'd, I'd hate to make this about me. I mean, you know, um, when, when I'm interested, when, I, I'm, when I already have, know what I have to say, and I, I'm not that interested in that. <laughs> right, that's right. Well, when, when you have me on your podcast next week, I can, I'll give it all, you know. I'll, I'll give um, so, uh, yeah, it, um, did it help? I mean, that, that question, did it help? Uh, I, I, I kind of want to get underneath that. So when you say help, I'm going to try to quantify that word a bit. Um, so help in the sense of, did it, did it, you know, there's help is kind of a broad term. So did it make me feel better in the moment? Um, versus did it provide meaning and, and fulfill? So, so ultimately the short answer is probably in the short term and not so much in the long term. Um, hmm. Yeah, because I came out of it and I, I realized this is not actually what I believe. But I, I think, I mean, oh, um, and, 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 and more, the, doc, the doctrines that, that ortho, it was an Orthodox uh, Judaism. Yeah. Um, you so, were going to, yeah. But also, but, but the question, did it help to me? that's not the question that, that I think matters. I mean, and I can answer that question, but, but I don't think that question should matter. And the reason's because when we make decisions, like, so this is, this is me kind of projecting or, or uh, what's the word, just getting on a pedestal and sh sharing how I think the world should work. But I, uh, to make decisions about life or religion or, or philosophy, I think that the question of does it help should be at the bottom of the list and the, the top of the list should be, is it true? And for me, I think where people get confused with religion and where I did is they, they convolute the benefits of does it help? Is it good? Is it healthy? Does it make your life better to believe in Jesus, to believe in a higher power with, is it true? And those get wrapped, those get wrapped around each other. So you start thinking about things, you know, so, so, so for example, it would come up like, um, you know, it is, we, studies have shown that it is beneficial to, uh, to pray. Like it's a, it's healthy. It's, it's, it's better to meditate and pray than to not meditate and pray. Now, if you mistake that for an argument about truth, you're, you're making like a, a, a critical logical fallacy. You're saying, well, it is objectively beneficial to prescribe to some aspect of religion. And thus it's logical to, to prescribe to some aspect of religion. So, so the person's then mistaking what's beneficial to what's true. So, so my opinion is that, that whether or not it's beneficial is irrelevant because it's not true. And if I'm going to live my life according to what helps and what feels good, then I'm, I'm going to get very confused and very lost really quickly. That's, 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 that's a long, short answer of what I think. Interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's, let's think about that for a minute. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what's beneficial can be true. I mean, uh, if you say, should I get the COVID-19 vaccine because it's beneficial? Yeah, mm -hmm. you should do that. Not, not just beneficial for me personally, but for society, my family, to protect the people around me that can't get vaccinated mm -hmm. and so on. That's a true, that's a benefit. And it's also well, happens well, to be true. Well, well, hold on. But, but, but something but, like that. Well, hold on. But so, so, the, so, so the truth versus falseness in terms of the COVID vaccine, COVID vaccine is purely dependent on whether it's 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 good for, it's good for you. So in other words, the vaccine. What is the vaccine? The vaccine is this thing that is designed to prevent COVID. And so if it works, it prevents COVID. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't prevent COVID. So in other words, in, in that case, the efficacy of the vaccine it does equate to the truth of it. Like in its essence, it is used to prevent something. So. Uh, it's, it's, it's one and the same. So truth equates to efficacy, but if, if you're saying, um, okay, then all right, that's good, but let's go one step further then a slightly different, uh, analogy. Does meditation work? 
So just yeah. leave prayer out of it. Leave the deity. Leave God yeah. out of it. Just this meditation. You know, twenty minutes a day. You, you chant yeah. your mantra in your head. You're sitting there quiet. There's no distractions. It's just you and your thoughts, and it's over. And you know, so there's some evidence that it works. Uh, that is to say, you feel better mm-hmm. by work. I mean, I mean, you know, not and not just you. That you know, studies show that most people, whatever the percentage is, you know, like sixty percent of people. Get X, you know, benefits when they meditate 20 minutes a day, five days a week, something like that. Yeah. You know, stress levels go down, blood flooding, you know, the stress hormones decrease, uh, you know, they, their headache goes away, whatever, whatever it is. Uh, so that would be a kind of truth um, that is first personal. It works for me. It's my truth. Uh, but more than that, you know, st- the, the purpose of these studies that people like my friend Deepak Chopra conduct is that it's not just true for me. It can't be true for you. You should try it. And, you know, in this case, I've tried it. It doesn't really work for me. I, I'm not into meditation. I'm probably not doing it right. <laughs> Whatever it is, uh, this is not my thing. But, you know, I get it. I get, I, I get the, the purpose of the studies. So then let's talk about prayer. So prayer in a way, not petitionary prayer where you're asking oh, the deity oh, oh, oh. to I, do I something. I hate to interrupt, but I, but I want to interject um, j- just to just to kind of catch up with where I'm at at this point in the conversation. So, so meditation is a, so, so I want to make, I want to introduce the, I want to propose a distinction between ideology and practice. So there's the practice of meditation, which this truth, truthfulness or falsehood is not based on an ideology. You're just assessing whether the practice has, has an efficacy or benefit. If there's an ideology behind it, like if you're, if let's, let's define meditation as, um, you know, God, meditation is ideology that God says we have to meditate. It's, it's good for us. And the premise is that God wants us to meditate. So then if, if the question is, is meditation true to the extent that, you know, God said it's true, then no, it'd be false. But if you're looking at yeah, just course, practice, if you're separating ideology and practice, I think you can evaluate practice. Sorry, I'll, I'll let you continue. That's my, what do you think? Yeah, no, that's, that, that, that's, that's exactly right. And so, but, you know, kind of the point of like secular Judaism is that, uh, you know, most of the secular Jews I know, they're atheists. They don't believe in God at all. And yet they still value the, the rituals, the ceremony, the social aspects of it, the history of the religion, the community, the culture, and so on. Yeah. That's a different kind of truth. Yes, I, I agree. I, I agree with you. Um, and I don't see any... Um, internal contradiction or, or paradox. I actually think with conservative Judaism, there's a little bit of, there's a little, depending on who you talk to, or it's all a spectrum. So there's a little, there could be some paradoxes there, but, but secular reform Judaism, I, there, the theological stance is uh, we don't believe in this stuff. Literally, we don't think God wrote this, but we find tremendous traditional and practical benefit to practicing it. And thus we're deciding that we don't believe in it. And they, they, it, 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 they probably wouldn't say this, this explicitly, but the theology is we do not believe in this. We believe this to be false in terms of, but we want to practice it anyway. Yeah. So that, that, that makes sense to me. Yeah. So that's what I'm asking is, um, you know, when you join this particular community, I mean, they could all be atheists, although I suspect not, but, but they could be, and you could still get benefit uh, of dealing with the grief of losing your sister by being around people that well, maybe they're older, they've experienced grief like this, they, they kind of understand, they walk you through things you could do to deal with the grief. It's never going to go away. You'll always have that, but you know, how you can get your life to go on while still dealing with that, you know, things like that. Uh, you know, that's kind of a different kind of truth than say empirical scientific truth. I, I agree. Something- so, and, and, and sorry if I had missed that. So I, I agree. I think there's probably something to be said for, for secular religion in that sense, where people who, whether they meditate just to meditate um, or they practice tradition just for the sake of community and family, I, I think that's really wonderful. But, but in my specific circumstance, I wasn't part of that community. I was part of yeah. a community that prescribed to the theology, like the belief system that we do this because there is a there is a empirical like it is it is true like they, we we believe that literally God has commanded this through another human being yeah and so for, for yeah. me yeah. I, I if if the premise is false then it, it's hard for me to buy into the rest of it and yeah so now I'm sort of coming to grip terms with like well 
where is the appropriate place for me to have religion? And it probably is in, in sort of a more secular way where, um, but being the way I am, I, I, I find much less meaning in, in practicing traditions that I don't, um, it's a really magical thing when, when you allow yourself to believe that what you're doing, you're communicating with God and it's, it's a lot less, uh, you know, it's not as special when, when all the magic's gone. <laughs> yeah, of course. Honestly, yeah. Right. Yeah. It doesn't do it. Religion doesn't do anything for me. Um, really? you know, when I've lost people in my yeah. lives, in my life that, uh, you know, this is what fr friends and family are for, you know, and in, in, in a social community, social capital as sociologists call it. Yeah. And religion can be one source of that. It doesn't work for me because like you, I have to actually believe the central tenets that exactly. you know, there's somebody out there that knows we're here. Uh, and cares about us, you know, that's kind of the core of most religious beliefs. Right. Um, and that, uh, you know, I just don't believe that there's no good reason for it. And, and so, so there, you just have to find other ways to deal with, you know, the life's problems. So I guess that's what you're going through now. So um, back to my original question, uh, I, apparently it didn't help because <laughs> they said, no, 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 you got to believe the the, 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 the man in the sky is up there <laughs> and uh, you're going, no, I don't believe that. So then you had to ask me, a, you asked me a yes, no question. And I had to go on this tangent and, you know, uh, so, 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 so was it helpful in the long term? So in the short term, yes, because uh, I, you know, it helped me from going crazy and it, it kept me from, um, you know, it, it happened, uh, in an instant, right? Like I, it was really interesting the way my brain reacted and kind of put a cocoon around me. Um, when it happened, I, um, yeah, I, I just had this sense of like, everything's okay. Everything's okay. And, um, I, it was, yeah, I, my brain had this kind of reverse effect where, um, it just kind of dulled the emotion. And I, I, I had this sense of just everything must be okay. And I think religion for a bit was this, this comfort, this um, kind of postponing of my actual emotions, uh, which maybe was necessary because maybe it would have been too much to deal with at first. Right. Right. Uh, Interesting. Because they do yeah. provide answers, you know, it's like no one else has answers. Then all of a sudden you have a community that says, look, uh, this had to happen. This was supposed to happen. Everything's okay. And, so yeah, in the short term, it helped. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah, everything is okay. Well, it's not in a way. I mean, it's not okay. You lost someone you loved and that's never going to be okay, but you just have to figure out how to live with it and go forward because uh, life is for the living and that's it. Then one day your turn will come and mine. So on, we'll all be gone. hundred years from now, none of us will be around talking about this. So um, maybe I better make it 125 years since people are going to live to be 100, I guess now. Your generation will live to be 100. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, so that's, you know, one, a big debate in atheist circles, humanist circles too, is um, as the number of uh, non-religious people increases, so-called nuns, tick the box for no religious affiliation, and number of atheists, agnostics, humanists continues to increase, do we need to replace religion with something? Hmm. Now, some people like myself and some of my uh, friends, they don't think so. They don't need any of that. Just life goes on. Hmm. Uh, but other humanists think, well, we need something like religion. Hmm. Call it whatever you want. Secular humanism, uh, where, you know, we have buildings in every city that people can go to and, you know, brick and mortar building with, uh, you know, a, a place to worship and, you know, babysitting and weddings and funerals and, you know, to just kind of cover the all aspects of life that religion does, but without God. Hmm. And there are groups like this. I mean, the Unitarian Universalists are, you know, mostly at most pantheists or deists or something like that. They mostly don't believe in God. And, uh, and there's, you know, atheists, there's a ethical society in New York. And there's a bunch of these groups that, that do this and, and you can go online and you can download their wedding ceremonies that have no mention of God and funerals with no mention of God. And you can conduct your own ceremonies and you can become a minister at the universal life church. Like I am, and you can marry people. It's all legal. It's all, and there's, there's no God talk at all. And uh, so that's doable, but to what extent it's needed? I don't know. Cause there you're talking about 
human nature. Do humans need religion? That's kind of the question. And to me, it's a, it's a little it's a little too broad. Religion's too big a word. You know, do do humans need social community? Yes, yes. Do we need family and people that we share values with and like to be around? Yes, of course. Uh, but that you know that that's not just religion. You know, religion is just one source of that need. And um, you know, it, it'd be like saying, well, humans have a sexual drive, so therefore we need Playboy mansions. No, that's, that doesn't follow. You know that we have a we have a drive to want to be with other people, or maybe believe in an afterlife or whatever a deity. It, you know that, that, that religion doesn't necessarily follow. There's other ways to get that without the supernatural. Even if we have an impulse to infer invisible agents uh, out in the world uh, that I've written about that you know are not really there. Um, you know, there's still ways to, around that clearly. You know, since the Enlightenment, the you know the number of people that are not superstitious, do not believe in the supernatural, has been on the increase, barely for a long time, getting momentum now. I think the number of nuns is up to about a third of Americans now, uh, which is quite amazing. I mean, it, you know, the, the people that were non-religious 50 years ago it was like one percent, two percent, almost nobody, and now it's you know like a third. And, uh, you know, they're leaving in droves the Catholic Church because of all the uh, priestly scandals and but other religions, too. And evangelicals are, you know, I talk to them and I read their books and stuff, and they're very worried about this. Like, you know, we're on the decline. What is going on here and why? And, you know, of course, to me, this is good news. <laughs> but, you know, they see it as bad news because in their view, without a belief in God, there's no objective morality. And without objective morality, then it's all relative and it's just postmodernism and, you know, there is no truth and anybody can do anything they want. And, and, and therefore, you know, there's no moral fabric to the country and, and down the rabbit hole you go and pretty soon you have just anarchy. Right? That, that's their thinking. Of course, we counter that with enlightenment values and, you know, atheism isn't a worldview. It's nothing. It's just I don't believe in God, full stop. You know, what do we believe in? Well, you know, we believe in enlightenment values like reason and science, rationality, empiricism. You know, we believe in civil rights and and uh, women's rights and gay rights. And, you know, we believe in the separation of church and state. There's a whole, you know, kind of long laundry list of stuff, positive assertions that we do believe, not just defining ourselves by what we don't believe, which is not constructive, in my opinion. And, and what do you think is the answer to, to all that. So do you, um, I spoke with Lawrence Krauss a week or two ago who had mentioned that we, we, we don't need religion to establish morality. And the premise there is that we can establish morality through reasoning. Um, but what, but what, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what, what, what your thoughts are on, on these points. So do you think we need religion or a substitute of religion? Um, you know, you, you mentioned what, evangelicals are thinking and these other groups, but what, what's, what's your, yeah, what's your take on all this? Well, so I've, you know, I've written two books on this. The Moral Arc is the kind of the, uh, showing that uh, moral progress over the last couple of centuries has been largely the result of enlightenment reason and science. And then I kind of show how that happened. And then in the book you mentioned, you want to talk about giving the devil his due. This is a collection of essays. Two of my essays in there are a little pinpointed a little more about how you can derive an ought from an is without breaking the naturalistic fallacy. And, uh, and so there's several ways to do this, kind of look at it, you know, the way the world is, you have to understand the way it is in order to reshape it to the way we want it to be. And uh, so, for example, if, if, if you take human flourishing as, uh, you know, kind of a fundamental starting point of moral values, which is pretty much where you have to start, um, and then you could just ask yourself, well, which social conditions lead to more human flourishing or less human flourishing? Uh -huh. uh, compare democracy to autocracy. Compare North Korea to South Korea. Compare East Germany to West Germany during the Cold War. It's obvious one is objectively absolutely better than the other in terms of human flourishing. 
and uh, and you can collect data on that. You can you can record different measures of you know per capita GDP, which translates into better food, better housing, more light, more travel, you know, safer streets, less crime, and on and on and on. I document all this in the Moral Arc, and that that to me is as good as any religious claim to mm. absolute objective truth, because mm. religious claims to objective truth re- re- requires some belief in the supernatural, that there's something out there that says this is right and that one's wrong, uh, or this is true and that's not true or whatever. Well, there is no such thing. Uh, But even if there was, you know, how do you know? Because unfortunately, the, you know, the, there's, there's more than one God or God created more than one holy book or more than one religion and they contradict each other. So a Martian from, an anthropologist from Mars that came here would, would ask, well, which is the right one? You know, did Jesus die? You know, did Jesus resurrect from the dead or did he not? You know, you talk to Christians, they go, oh, yeah, absolutely. Here's our arguments for why. And you talk to Jews and Muslims, they go, no, 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 never happened. Well, you know, how's the Martian anthropologist supposed to know who's right? Because they, none of them have any evidence for it. It's just an assertion. And, and this is what we believe or else I wouldn't be a Christian if I didn't believe that. Right. So. To somebody who cares about the truth, really the truth, objective truth, then that that can't be a starting point uh, for a new worldview. Um, so you end up with something like the Universal Declara- Declaration of Universal Human Rights um, that was passed in 1948, where uh, you know they just kind of listed this uh, set of tenets that you know all of humanity believes in. And, they, and none of it had to do with religion because you, you couldn't have a universal declaration of rights if you said, and by the way, you also have to believe Jesus died for your sins because that would leave out you know, the two, uh, three, two-thirds of humanity, right? So um, you have to start with something like reason, rationality, just common humanity, and, and that's where science comes in, science and reason. When I use the word science, I'm using it in the broadest sense that you know, just knowledge of all kinds that's, you know, reliable. It's trustworthy, reliable knowledge that was gained through reason, rationality, empiricism, experimentation, uh, you know, peer review, you know, and so on. There's a a community of scholars and scientists that studies a particular thing. So I'm not saying go to the geologist to ask what's the right position on abortion, (laughs) right? I mean, you know, just, you know, what are the arguments that pro-lifers have, that pro-choicers have, and let's just lay it all out there and have a conversation we can arrive at some kind of something like objective truths that way. And so would you rather be starving or satiated? Would you rather be free or enslaved? Would you rather be tortured or free from torture? Would you rather be knowledgeable or ignorant? And so on. The, the answer is obvious. Right. And that's, that's, that's right. how you derive an odd from it is. And ultimately the premise, like the, the one leap of faith you're making in all this is saying that the goal is human flourishing. Cause you know, some, sociopath will come up and say, hold on a second. I don't care about human flourishing. You know, my goal is my, yes, yes, of course. Right. is that, am, am I correct in thinking that that if there is to be a leap of faith, that that is the sort of the single, uh, just foundational premise we have to accept there. No, not faith at all, because you can just ask people. Yeah, of course, the psychopath, you know, they're, they're not even part of the conversation because they're not, there's something wrong with their brain. They're broken people. You know, you don't ask the schizophrenic who hears voices, you know, what his opinion is on immigration policy or whatever. Uh, you know, it has to be people that are capable of rationality and reason. And, and so, again, just collectively, you could just ask people and, and surveys do this, you know, the world's value survey. You know, would you rather live in a democracy or an autocracy? When people are actually free to tell pollsters what they want, um, then that's what they want. That's what they say they want. We want free elections, you know, and, and we want to be, you know, we don't want to be enslaved and we don't want an autocrat telling us what to do and so on. That's what people want. And, and so you come at this many different ways that social scientists do of different ways of measuring human nature and what what it is we want to flourish. And uh, so I think it's safe to say, as a moral starting point, I mean, you have to start somewhere, that kind of evidence is not just faith, you know, it's, it's centuries of studying the human condition in which you have to convince other people of your argument. So I'm making an argument that 
people would prefer democracy over autocracy. Well, don't take my word for it. You know, go look at the world's value survey yourself. You can see the data or go ask somebody. Now, you can't go to North Korea and ask them how they feel about Kim Jong-un because they have to lie. <laughs> but, you know, uh, but ask people that have escaped. <laughs> you know, anyway, so I'm, I'm arguing Yeah, it's not a leap of faith. It's, you know, in fact, none of science is. There's this idea that science is like a religion. You have your faith. I have my faith. It's all faith. No, science is not based on faith at all. And uh it, it's it's argument, it's evidence, and if you have crappy evidence and and lousy arguments, then we'll just reject your your statement, your assertion. And but but religion doesn't have anything like that. Um, you know, it's based on doctrines that you either believe or you don't believe, and that's largely based on how you were raised or you know what influences in your life were there. Uh, but if you have to actually make your case, that's harder to do. Yeah. So I, I was wrong to say that that's an assumption we're making is that there's this premise of human flourishing. Let's make that assumption. Everything is deduced from that. Well, you point that is that that's not a, a, an argument of faith. That's just as scientific as all the other points in this, because if we. Well, to, to, to be fair, Jake, what you said perfectly reflects what most people think. That is most atheists, secular scientists. Most of them will say, well, that's just my starting point. I have no evidence for it. Nonsense. I'm going much further than this. There are many of us, Steve Pinker, Sam Harris, myself, maybe Jonathan Haidt, maybe Franz Saval, a few people that think actually we can ground moral values in facts, science, reason, and so on. It's not just secular humanism is one kind of religion and Catholicism is another kind of religion. That's actually not only what most religious people think, but that's actually what most scientists and philosophers think. And I'm arguing that we can do better than that. That's, that, that's interesting. And it makes sense, right? Because it, because the response is no, no, we, we can in a sense prove that human flourishing is not just this arbitrary starting point. This is valid. This is, so, so let me ask you a, a question about yourself, Michael. So you, you, you've done a lot of incredible work throughout your career um, in The Skeptic, you've, you've, you've written books, you've been a leading voice uh, for logic and, and reason. And, and in doing so, you've, you've compelled a lot of people to consider the world through a more rational lens, whether it comes to religion or, um, or, or denialism or different ideas. And so my, my question is, where do things stand today? You know, given what, what do you see as the most, the, the biggest challenge that we as a society face or is um, what, what's the most compelling logical fallacy or, or, or issue that, that people are combating that you feel is the most important to tackle today? Yeah, I was just, looking through trying to find these passages that I was going to read to you. And I do think from our perspective, um, that is to say atheist, humanists, whatever, you know, we need to um, like recapture the narrative that, you know, you don't need religion to have a fulfilling, meaningful, purposeful, moral life. That, that, that is the position that most people have always believed including secular humanists and atheists and so on. You know, Dan Dennett calls this belief in belief. Um, and Jared Coyne calls that position, you know, faithism. It's a, it's a little bit of a, um, how should I say it? A kind of a, a, a patronizing position. It's like, I don't need belief in God, but the little people do. I, I understand it. You know, the commoners, the bourgeoisie, they need religion, like Marx's, you know, opiate of the masses. You know, it's for the it's for the the dummies, right? But we egghead intellectuals, we smart people, we don't need that. Okay. So, you know, first of all, that's not a good argument to make to those people because they can see that they're being made fun of, right? And uh, they don't like that. So they claim, well, we do have good arguments, and here they are, and so then we can debate those. But, but in any case, that aside, I think you know we need to recapture the narrative that, in fact, most of the moral progress we've made since the Enlightenment, uh, including and especially the founding of the United States with its, doc its, its doctrines that are grounded in Enlightenment humanism and reason, 
um, is the way to go, to keep going. This has been working and, and we should keep doing more of it. And the separating, this is why separation of church and state was so radical. I mean, this just never been done. You know, even in modern day Germany, my wife is from Cologne, Germany, you know, they, they, they don't have this, you know, when you're born in Germany now, and you, you have to, your parents uh, tick the box for which religion you're baptized in. And then when you get a job, whenever, when you're a teenager, early twenties, they start withholding taxes from your paycheck to go to that religion. It, 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 but it's an opt-out system. You have to go down to the courthouse, fill out the paperwork and say, I'm opting out of this. Uh, with a uh, payroll withholding program for that religion. I don't want it to go to anybody. Or you can actually even designate your withholding to go to the secular humanists, which are considered kind of a religion in Germany. And this explains why, by the way, the Scientologists wanted to get in on that in the 1990s. They wanted to be recognized as a major religion in Germany so they could get in on the free tax money. So what we're doing in the United States is just completely unheard of historically. But that's a good thing. Right. And it's not just good for you and I, non-believers. It's good for religious people. Right. So one explanation for why religion has flourished so much in the United States in the last half century or so, except for the recent decline, but still way bigger than European countries, is because we have separation of church and state. So you're free to do whatever you want. Go ahead and create your mega church and, and, and treat it like you're Google or something, like you're a major corporation and you want to market and get masses of people and do fundraising and, and you know, put on these huge shows that are like rock concerts and, and so on. And you get, you know, huge audiences and big followings. And, you know, in a way that kind of separation of church and state is good, good for religious people. You don't want the government meddling around in, in religion because historically that's never been good for religion, right? So anyway, the, uh, the, you know that that's the thing that, that is that is to say this kind of recapturing the narrative. Okay, let me give you the uh, my argument for that I was trying to make there. Hold on for a second here. Um, As you're looking for that, allow me just to kind of re reflect yeah. on what you just said, Michael. So my, my my question was basically, what's the biggest challenge today? in terms of rational thought and it, it sounds like what you're saying is it it, it really st is still about recapturing the narrative as as far as finding a um a framework to, re to replace uh religion and i think about your earlier point question of do people need religion and my, my opinion is i don't know about need but i i think that people want a sense of meaning and so yes. I, don't, I don't know if they, I don't really, right. I'm not qualified yeah. to say need, but I think they will want meaning. And so maybe it's a quite, well, how do we. Yes, I, I, I would say even it's a kind of need. And there are psychologists who study this, right? There's a whole slew of uh, psychologists study happiness. There's a whole positive psychology industry, but a branch of that is psychologists who study meaning and purpose, like Clay Routledge, my friend and colleague, uh, who's written quite a bit about this. Um, and, and it's not just happiness because, you know, this idea we have that I'm walking around happy, like in this state of bliss, that isn't just what people want. Of course, that's nice. But, you know, much of what we do um, it doesn't bring immediate happiness. It, it, it brings long-term fulfillment. Uh, it, it's, it's more meaningful to, you know, have like a, a difficult, challenging job or career. Much of the time, you're not happy doing it. It's not fun. You're working hard because you have this goal and the goal itself is more rewarding and fulfilling. And that brings meaning to your life. So difference between happiness and meaningfulness, for example, is the time frame. So happy things, things that make you happy are short-term. Things that bring fulfillment and meaning are long-term. You know, looking back on my life, what have I done? Looking forward, what are my goals? Uh, whether I'm happy doing it or having fun doing it is irrelevant. If, it, if it's fun, okay, fine. But if it's not fun, even better, you know, that the, the, the things worth having in life are hard to get. <laughs> it's like the Tom Hanks line in, in uh, a league of their own, you know, there's no yeah. crying in baseball, you know, it's hard. It's supposed to be hard. That's what makes it great. If it was easy, anybody could do it. It wouldn't be fulfilling. Right. So uh, yeah. Anyway, so I, I, again, you know, where do you find this? Well, there's lots of ways that, you know, secular psychologists write about of how to find, you know, meaning and purpose in your life. So here they are, um, you know, meaningful work. That is a reason to get up out of bed in the morning, out of, get out of the house, 
go somewhere and do something productive, whatever it is, and you got to make a living anyway. So if you, if you can find a job that's actually also fulfilling, all the better, right? And then, um, and then, meaning, then you know, meaningful relationships. So friends, a social circle of some kind, people you like hanging out with, that you enjoy their company, and so on. And then, and then, a family, you know, just a spouse, a significant other, partner good friend, close friend, someone you love, someone that cares about you, your parents, your grandparents, your siblings, and your, uh, you know, I don't know if you have a girlfriend or wife or whatever, but something like that, all that brings, all that brings a lot of meaning and purpose. And then, and then the fourth one is, is loosely called something spiritual or awe-inspiring or something that takes you out of yourself, that it's not just about you. You know, so this could be, again, it could be religion, but it could be joining, you know, a, a charity, you work for a nonprofit, or you support a charity, or you have some particular cause you're working toward. Uh, this is, you know, the, again, I kind of tend to uh, make fun of the social justice warriors, right? But but really, they have a cause, you know, it's like, hey, there's injustice in the world. Yeah, I know. And we're going to go do something about it. Okay, that's kind of a sacred cause, even though I think they're going about it the wrong way. Uh, nevertheless, I get that, you know, it's that people are passionate about, and that's what brings meaning and, and, and fulfillment in life. And uh, so you don't need religion for that. You can get it through religion, but you don't need that. And there's a lot of different sources and just saying it, it's like, oh yeah, okay. I see. Yeah, of course I can do this and this and this and this. So go do it. And then you'll have a more meaningful life. And yeah. And, th and then the, the next step is, well, how do you motivate people to do that? <laughs> okay. Then you're in psychology of motivation and achievement and willpower and things like that. Well, let me respond to that from the perspective of a formerly religious person. So, so a religious person has access to meaningful work. They have access to meaningful relationships. They have access to family and they, and they of course have access to that spiritual component. So as it like, let, let's suppose I'm a religious person. I would have all four of those things. And I would say, Michael, I've got all yeah. four of those. And on top of those four, yeah. I believe that it is divine. It is of divine creation that I am sitting here right now in this moment. I'm connected with this higher power. And I, I would have this, I have this tremendous sense of being that's the, of, of entitlement to my existence in, the, in, in this moment that transcends those four things. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, all the power to you, but, but is it true? So we're back to where you started. You know, it, 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 it also has to be true or has some basis and a reason to believe it. And for me, and not just for me, but for a lot of people, it also has to be true. So just the saying, uh, you know, there's an outside source of some kind we call God that, that grants some kind of uh, Archimedean point from which we can lift these values to a higher state. There's no reason to believe that. I mean, there are reasons, but the, there's better reasons not to believe it. And, uh, and and so that you can read my books or Dawkins books or Pinker's books or Krauss's books or whatever, and you can see what the reasons are and, and, and why they don't hold up. So therefore, where do you turn? Well, you have these other secular values, but, but, but even if you're right, so again, back, yeah, go ahead. It's, it's all you've got of those four things. I mean, all, all I was pointing out is that a religious person will have this fifth pillar. That's a deeper meaning. Yes. Right. Well, you yeah. Establish that level of feeling of meaning of contentness outside of religion. Yeah, outside that's right. Yeah. I know. I get it. I understand. But I do think for more and more people, it's not enough to just say, well, I just believe it. You know, they, you got to have reasons. This is why there's been a rise in the last half century or so of, of these kind of God debates and, and, you know, debates uh, uh, about the value of religion debates about, uh, can you be good without God, uh, debates on the, on uh, the afterlife and debates on Jesus resurrection. I've done all these debates, public debates, hundreds of them. So I, I understand where they're coming from, but why are they doing that? Because we live in an age of science and reason. And it's not enough to just say, well, I believe what I believe, you believe what you believe, and let's just all get along. Uh, it's like, why is there a creationist movement? Because evolution is the accepted theory. Well, why is it accepted? Because it's grounded in science and reason. Well, I want my creationist uh, beliefs to be grounded in science and reason. Well, they're not. Well, I'm going to make up a bunch of arguments that make it look like it is. That's what we call pseudoscience. And that's what I do for my day job. Uh, yeah. is analyzing those claims. Well, they don't hold water. They just don't. I mean, you can find them in, 
young earth creationist circles, but that's it. They're like the flat earthers. They just, they have a little bubble and no one outside the bubble believes it. And it's, well, it's very compelling if, if you're in it. I was um, living in a yeshiva called Eish HaTorah across from the Western Wall in the old city in Jerusalem. And there's this a class taught by, you know, a pretty, someone who's actually, you know, who's articulate and compelling. And it's this whole broken down argument that as a, as someone who's, who doesn't have a PhD in religion, you would never be able to refute, right? But it's like, well, how did, how did the Bible predict this and that and the other? And it's just, and to an outsider, to, to someone like myself at the time, it seemingly was extremely rational, um, but it's the pseudoscience mm-hmm. you're talking about. And it's, it's, and um, it's, it's really, it's not fair, I think, to present an argument like that to someone who's vulnerable or doesn't know the full picture, because you, you can't, unless you know the counter argument, you, you, you know, you can't refute it. Um, well, that's right. And that's why I write the books I write. And that's why we publish Skeptic Magazine. Every issue provides readers with here's the arguments and here's the counter arguments. And it's this kind of a specialty niche that we fill because there are a lot of people that most people have no idea. Even scientists, you know, I remember back in the 80s watching some scientists, evolutionary biologists would debate Dwayne Gish, for example. He's, he debated hundreds of scientists and he mostly mopped the floor with them. I mean, because they thought, well, I understand evolutionary biology. I'm going to go in there and I'm just going to tell them what I know. It isn't about evolutionary biology. They have their own set of unique peculiar arguments uh, and the way that they spin it to make it look like your theory is false. Therefore, my belief is true and so on. You have to know what their arguments are. Same thing with the Holocaust deniers. Uh, you know, I, you know, they make these arguments that you would think any Holocaust historian would be able to knock out of the park. No problem. No, they can't because they're not making rational arguments. They're doing something else. Right. Same yeah. thing with the, the climate deniers, the anti-vaxxers, the flat earthers. They have a unique set of arguments. That if you don't know them, you, you're going to get tripped up. And you said, I don't have a PhD. I know many PhDs who have no idea how to counter these arguments. Yeah. Right? So, that, so it's not, that's not enough. You need specialty knowledge. So I got, I got, that's how I got, was in it for a year. And then I was at this cafe at midnight and someone had sent me an article written by Jay Michelson describing specifically how the Bible codes, which is the easiest to disprove how, how the Bible codes arguments wrong. And then I read into how there's basically four central arguments for Orthodox Judaism. One is Bible, Bible code is kind of peripheral, but the main one is the sort of the, some of the predictions that it makes and this idea of mass revelation and how you couldn't tell the story of mass revelation without mass re- revelation because it would never have perpetuated itself. And there's a bunch of other arguments. And, and uh, I would ask, I'd pose this to all my friends, say, hey, I don't, you know, help me understand what I'm missing here. But you know, what's remarkable that, uh, I discovered a year ago, all you have to do is Google it, is just say, Google, uh, how do you respond to this question? The fact that I spent 12 months asking people who couldn't answer the question, how do I refute this? And I never went on Google for three seconds. <laughs> and it's because subconsciously, I didn't want to. So now when I've argued with a, someone religious, I've said, look, have you considered the other side? Have you gone on Google? For three seconds and just for, for four minutes just looked at how what the flip yeah. side of this argument would be and they don't so. yeah that's right it's so easy now i mean you know we started skeptic there was no google there was no internet yeah. you know it's just a print magazine harder to get the information out there now it's it's at your fingertips within seconds yeah that's right i mean yeah you can google what's the ontological argument for god's existence and what's the counter to it yeah. there's all wikipedia bit yeah. just to that and if you and if you haven't done that, if you're a religious person that has not done that, then you then you aren't looking for the the truth, because if you were, That's you right. would consider the other argument. I, I really want to I, I want to be respectful of your time, but I really do want to ask about your your book. Do we have a hard stop at eleven thirty? Oh yeah, well it's coming up. Yeah, just another five ten minutes. Uh, okay, perfect, okay, perfect, perfect, perfect. Um, so so well, here's a question I have, Michael. So you you've been um, discussing these I, ideas uh, on as you mentioned, you know many, many different platforms. It sounds like ultimately there has been momentum towards more scientific thought. Um, yeah. Do, do you think the movement's gone in the right direction? And what do you, like, what are the barriers right now? Do you think? Why doesn't everyone... Uh, it depends what you mean by, yeah, what's the movement? Do you mean skepticism or atheism or science, pro-science in general, science? 
enthusiasm? Yeah, I, I, I sort of, I guess I kind of bundled them together. Yeah, I, well, I do think, yeah, of course, in general, in the long run, uh, say, since the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution, yeah, it's definitely going the right direction. I mean, yeah. we've made a massive amount of human progress that I documented in the moral art, Steve Pinker documented in two books, Better Angels of Our Nature and Enlightenment Now, and Matt Ridley and the Rational Optimist and others, a lot of books about this. That's, and what holds us It's back? unquestionable. Yeah, what, what holds us back in 2020? Well, well, so, so but, but in the short run, of course, there's ups and downs and, you know, three steps forward, two steps back. The biggest obstacles today right now, you know, really it's what I've been griping about is, you know, critical race theory, woke ideology, the general um, setting aside truth, back to where we began, and you were you were talking about the lack of the search for empirical truth in, in your religious experiences there. Well, that's true also in, uh, in, in secular institutions. I mean, like the New York Times, I just had a guest on, Ashley Rinsberg. He wrote this book called The Gray, the Gray Lady Winked. It's about the New York Times and, and how they've kind of made a turn towards social justice rather than um, journalistic accuracy. Uh, and okay, they're a private company, they can do what they want, but but that's kind of emblematic of a larger social trend that, uh, you know, social justice activism trumps uh, the search for truth. Now, of course, they think they're pursuing the truth, but they're not. Yeah, I'll just give you other examples. Jonathan Haidt had a nice lecture a couple of years ago about telos, T-E-L-O-S, telos, like teleology, the ultimate end goal of something. In this case, he was talking about universities, and that, you know, many, many universities has, has, have as their motto, you know, truth or the search for truth or the quest for truth, something to do with Veritas, truth. And, but a lot of them have turned away from that now. Now their telos is social justice. Well, what does that mean? Well, it, it means whatever the truth is, is irrelevant. We want, you know, equal outcomes for all groups or whatever, however they're defining it. And, uh, and now that, that, that has spilled over into uh, corporate America, you know, and that these, you know, many, most of the Fortune 500 companies are hiring vice presidents of diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, which is now a, a major, you get a bachelor's degree in, in DEI. And it's become a whole thing that, that has nothing to do with the search for truth. You know, it has to do with something else, the social justice activism. And uh, this happened in an atheist circle. After Dawkins spoke... The God Delusion came out in 2006 and you know, kind of put atheism really right up front and center. It was huge. And then after that, there was a then there was kind of a division of those who were militant atheists and those of us who were not so militant. As I said, I don't like to define myself by what I don't believe, but others, you know, they do. Get out there and, and, and march against the enemy, you know, wade into them, destroy their arguments, and we'll convert them to atheism, right? Anyway, then there was another division after that uh, of the atheist plus, and the plus is social justice. And uh, so at this point, you know, there was no more discussion of what's actually true. It was just like, well, what could we do to, you know, for race relations or gender relations or, or whatever? And, you know, so that's my, I think, biggest concern. And now this has gone far beyond just atheist circles or skeptic circles. But, you know, that, that, that the country at large is in this, uh, you know, kind of hand wringing over the George Floyd killing and, you know, racial injustices and now anti-racism and systemic racism. It's just you know, all we talk about every day. And um, and so that to me is it's 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 kind of a diversion away from the kind of truth we've been talking about. <clears throat> Excuse well, me. Let me ask a question on that. So I, I hear what you're saying, Michael. The, what 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 it sounds like you're saying is the focus should be on the truth, and when you develop a narrative with a goal that's separate from the truth, you can get yourself in trouble because if you're no longer have using truth as a compass, then you know, you, you're, you can get yourself into trouble. But, but he, so here's my question. Um, you know, 20 minutes ago, when we were talking about how you can derive morality outside of religion, you, you were explaining to me that we can start with the premise of human flourishing and from that uh, premise establish morality. So, so my question is this, if you're saying that we should live moral lives using the premise that we should optimize for human flourishing, 
then wouldn't that be aligned to a company or whoever wanting to optimize for just that human flourishing, right? Equality and so forth. Yes, okay. I was just looking for some passages here. Anyway, um, well, yes, but it depends on how are you defining uh, justice and fairness. And the word equality is very loaded. The original meaning by the founders is was equal opportunity, no obstacles for you to pursue your happiness and for me to pursue mine. And not just happiness, you know, property and whatever we want for our lives. Uh, but the word now, equity, is the word that's used. It's, and it means something quite different. It means equal outcomes. That is, you know, each group. So, by, by the way, the individual is now subsumed into groups. This is the opposite of what I argued in the moral arc, that the, 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 the founding moral starting point is the individual, because it's the individual that suffers or flourishes, not groups. Individuals vote, not groups, uh, and so on. So, But now the individual is subsumed into a group that is in competition with other groups in this kind of oppressor, oppression, <laughs> oppressor or oppressee uh, dynamic. And, and then it becomes all about power. So like the 1619 Project, for example, is just openly saying, uh, we don't really care what the truth is. The truth in history is whoever has the power that says the truth is. So now we at the New York Times, we have the most powerful newspaper on the planet ever with the biggest reputation that anyone has. And we're going to say that the founding of the United States was in 1619, not 1976, and that it was all about slavery. Now, they made no pretense like this is actually true. And when they were pushed and criticized by professional historians who study this for a living, uh, including liberal, <laughs> not just conservative historians, but mostly they were mostly liberal, said this simply isn't true. Their response is, was essentially, we're not printing what's true. We're printing you know, what's just, what's equal, what's right. It's, it, you know, it's our turn. We want the power. You've had the power to tell history like you want to. Now we have the power and we're going to take back that narrative, right? So the problem with this is that, but, but the truth still matters. I mean, you know, was, was the Declaration of Independence and the, and the Revolutionary War really to keep slaves? No, that, 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 that isn't what it was about. And, uh, and, and that's simply wrong. But, but their response is, we don't care. It's, we're, this is our narrative. You have yours. We have ours. We're bigger than you. Tough luck. All right. So that, that to me is a problem. And that's why you have to, again, you have to have some rational grounding to where your moral starting point is and, and, and how you go out from there. Hmm. I was trying to find those, those quotes from... Uh, but do you, do you uh, from I'm saying, maybe maybe I'm making a an a fallacious comparison, but do do you see my my point of um and I'm not saying that I necessarily prescribe to this view. I just wanted to to sort of present a potential argument against what you're saying, which is that if the the premise is human flourishing, then certainly it would still remain logical to take actions that we as society feel are aligned to ultimate human flourishing. But I, I think what you're oh, saying. Oh, I see what, I see what you mean. Yeah. yeah. That's what it sounds like, but it, it isn't. It's not individual human flourishing. It's group flourishing and not flourishing in the way I've been talking about it, but, but in some kind of arbitrary metric that they're using. In this case, like, the, like Ibram X. Kendi's definition of uh, anti racism is wherever there's any kind of disparity between blacks and whites. Well, what do you mean disparity? Well, like say, um, uh, you know, there's 13% of Americans are, are, are black, but there's only 3% CEOs or there's only 6% congressmen and senators, therefore racism. Well, that doesn't necessarily follow. That may be true, but there may be other reasons. And let's have a discussion. That's what social scientists do. They, you know, tease apart causal variables to look at uh, effects, okay. But that's not what they're saying. They're saying, no, no. And there's not even any debate. This is, we're just telling you, this is racism. 
Well, okay, that's the problem. So you're not going to get the outcome you want, human flourishing, if you have the wrong premises. If you're saying, well, the cause of the reason African Americans have lower home ownership rates is because of racism. Okay, this isn't going to get you better black black African American home ownership rates. It, it, it won't. It has to be a specifically targeted problem, like in the case of in the '60s with redlining, when banks would draw a red line around neighborhoods that said those people have bad credit scores. Don't we're not going to give them homeowners home loans, mortgages, right? So this turned out to be a discriminatory practice, and the laws were changed. They were sued, and so on and so forth. And redlining is now illegal. So if there's still cases of that, then yes, apply the law by all means to make it fair. You know that that nobody should be restricted in home ownership in this case based on the color of their skin. But that's not what they're arguing. <laughs> they're arguing something else. Until home ownership rates are perfectly equal, then there's no social justice, and that's so I'm arguing that's the wrong definition of fairness and justice. Huh. We could, I'm sure we could go on for hours about this, which so I, I, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you go. I, I really, really, really appreciate your time, Michael. I'm a huge fan of yours and of your work. Thank uh, you. And You're I'll, welcome. I, I seriously, and I, and I also appreciate uh, you educating me. I mean, you're able to help me broaden my perspective and help me grasp how this premise of human flourishing is is actually a, like a logic based premise and is not any sort of assertion that we're making. Oh, 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 oh,